Welcome to the OTMP podcast. It is Tuesday, the 19th of January, 2021. In response to the feedback from our first podcast in December, we have produced a follow-up discussion with Professor Ben Cowling, the Division Head of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. In this episode, OTMP's Dr. David Owens sits down with Professor Cowling to discuss the latest information surrounding the COVID-19 situation in Hong Kong. We've seen the fourth wave peaked a while ago. Case numbers are now on the way down, but it's taking quite a while for the numbers to come down as far as we'd like them to come. Their discussion also covers the evolving mutations which are being reported internationally. If that variant was able to get into Hong Kong and get a foothold here, it would mean it would be much more difficult for us to control its spread. And what the current data on vaccine efficacy tells us about the effectiveness of the different vaccines. And I want to give one formula, if that's okay. I'm a mathematician uh, by training. So if I give you A times B. As we have consistently advised, information and education are key factors in the management of infectious disease. We ask that you critically analyse all information, including ours, and ask if it is rational and logical. So Ben, thank you very much for agreeing to meet up again and, and chat about the current situation. It's a month or so since we last met. What's the current status, do you think, in Hong Kong? And now we're in mid-January. We've seen the fourth wave peaked a while ago. Case numbers are now on the way down. But it's taking quite a while for the numbers to come down as far as we'd like them to come. We'd like to get down to zero, but I guess that may not happen yet. Maybe by early to mid-February, the government's become more aggressive in trying to chase down outbreaks and find cases. And I think that's going to help. But at the same time, people are getting tired of the social distancing measures. And I think that's contributing to the prolonged nature of this fourth wave compared to the third wave, which was over more quickly. We tend to see these curves come up, crest and and fall down. So it it would look like after Chinese New Year is going to be the time, isn't it? I get the sense that the government was hoping originally that we could get things in control for Chinese New Year, even earlier, I think it may be open up the border, but it's looking that that's unlikely now, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be difficult to get down to zero, at least consistently with a number of days of zero cases by Chinese New Year. Maybe, if we're lucky, it does need an element of luck to get all the way down to zero and avoid a late outbreak that then kicks everything off again. And then the next difficult decision will be for the government to decide when to relax the social distancing measures, because after those measures are relaxed, and maybe the civil servants go back to work, maybe the schools reopen, maybe bars, karaoke, nightclubs reopen, we, we hope they can. But at that point, then we're vulnerable to a resurgence in infections, and that would be our fifth wave. If the government keeps the measures in place for longer, then that's going to give us security against a fifth wave, but obviously with all that economic impact of those measures at a time when we don't have any COVID cases. So if you remember between the third and the fourth wave, the measures were lifted fairly soon and we didn't have a very quick resurgence, but we did eventually have a resurgence. Um, I'm not sure what the government's planning for the, for the end of the fourth wave, uh, how long the measures will be in place after we get to zero. 
I suppose another factor which is at play here is that we know that the, the virus is an RNA virus and we know that RNA viruses have a tendency to mutate relatively rapidly, don't they? And we now know and have some very interesting data on the gene sequencing of, of viruses from multiple clusters. Would you agree that one way to look at this is we, we almost have multiple little clusters and epidemics taking place in different parts of the world as part of this one large uh, epidemic and we've seen this in the UK with the UK variant in South Africa and, and 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 I think you know worryingly the Manaus variant these are looking more infectious you've been following this mm. from an epidemiological perspective very closely have you got any thoughts on yeah right so so the the virus is always changing in Hong Kong, almost every person that's been infected, their virus will have a slightly different fingerprint just because of the virus gradually evolving over time. In many cases, those tiny changes don't really make a difference. But from time to time, a change in the virus occurs, which gives it maybe more ability to transmit or maybe some other property that gives it an advantage. And then over time, those variations become more prevalent. And that's what we saw in the UK with initially just a small number of people with a particular variant and then over time that prevalence was increasing and so now it's more dominant and it does seem like it's about 50% more transmissible than the, the previous viruses. If that variant was able to get into Hong Kong and get a foothold here, it would mean it would be much more difficult for us to control its spread. We might need even stricter measures than we have in place now which have brought the reproductive number down to about 0.8, meaning on average one case is infecting 0.8 others. Ten cases will infect eight more. And then that, that will bring a, the case numbers down from week to week. But if we have a virus that's 50% more transmissible, that's potentially then requiring even stricter measures to get the reproductive number down to a, to a level below one where the epidemic would be under control. So I understand why the governments have having even stricter measures now on travellers to try and limit the opportunities for any new strains to get into Hong Kong. But I guess we have to be concerned that sooner or later one of these variants may arrive here and may make its way into the community. And then hopefully by the time that happens we'll have vaccines available so that, so that we'll be a little bit uh, better protected and maybe won't need the kind of measures that, that we've seen in place that are more and more drastic in Europe and, and other parts of the world. I mean, I guess also the controlling the size of the epidemic, which has been done so well in Hong Kong, is one of the great advantages for that is it reduces the likelihood of these genetic mutations taking place, doesn't it? The fears of the yeah. overwhelming of, of the systems in, in, in Europe, in the UK, in the US, and in, in Brazil and South Africa is that the more cases that are around, the greater the probability and the greater the pressure for the mutations to to develop a sort of evolutionary advantage. Yes, I think one part of that is when you've got a lot of infections. If you've got a million infected people, then that's a million tiny mutations. And if one of those is a little bit more successful, then it's going to have a chance to spread. If in Hong Kong, you've only got a thousand infections, 2000 infections, there's a much lower baseline rate of those mutations. And hopefully for us in Hong Kong, a much lower chance that any kind of new variant would emerge here. But then also you've got a separate issue of immunity. So in the UK, in 
South Africa, in Brazil, there's increasing levels of immunity in the population because so many people have already been infected. And that means there's now evolutionary pressure on the virus to find a way around that. And if it's given enough opportunities, so if there's still millions more infections, maybe there'll be a variant emerging which can escape the immunity that's already in the population from maybe 10% or 15 or 20% of people who've been infected in, in London or, or actually much higher rates in, in Brazil and South Africa, most likely. And that's really worrying because that means that the virus can then continue to spread even after large numbers of people have been infected and, and immune against the virus they were infected with. Whether the change in the immunity of the virus impacts its ability to escape from the protection of the vaccines is an important factor, isn't it? And your, one of your great areas of expertise is in influenza. Mm. It, it, if we look at measles as an RNA virus, which, which mutates but doesn't seem to escape and, and so the vaccine is stable for a long time, versus influenza, which changes rapidly, do you feel that COVID is going to be a, a condition closer to influenza? Do you think, do you think vaccines will need to be changed as, as, as this condition evolves? I think we'll be somewhere between those two, between measles and between influenza. So it seems like at the moment, coronavirus is not evolving as quickly as, for example, influenza. And laboratory experiments have suggested that immunity from the vaccine could still protect against the variants that we know about, like the UK variant. But until we've really seen in practice vaccinated people and whether they're getting infected or not with, with different variants, we won't know. In terms of natural immunity, it does seem like the immunity after the first natural infection may not be particularly strong. Maybe after the second or, or subsequent infections, you'd have better and stronger immunity. But the first natural infection doesn't seem to give a very high level of immunity. And the, the correlate of that is with vaccines. We've heard about people needing two doses, maybe because the first dose gives your immune system a chance to look at the virus but not necessarily long-term, long-lasting immunity, maybe a parallel with infections as well. So, so two doses of vaccine and maybe the second natural infection would also give a stronger immunity than just one infection. Rather like the concept of the booster dose of the vaccination. Totally. So the, yeah, they, they say the first dose is to prime your immune system to give it a chance to see the virus. And then the second one is a booster to really ramp up the immunity to a high level. What do you think about that data from the... Oxford AstraZeneca study that suggested in the, it was small numbers of people and it was in a younger population, wasn't it? But they gave, by mistake, a, a lower dose of vaccine to the first group and, and, and ended up with a, a better response rate. Have you seen any? Yeah, it was fascinating. I really like that to be followed up because that was just a small study. But the idea of having a smaller priming dose hasn't really been studied that much before, at least there hasn't, hasn't been a lot of other examples of when a smaller priming dose would be a good idea. Typically, the priming dose and the booster dose are the same. Um, but if, if that strategy really does pan out in additional trials, then that's something that we should be looking at as a way to improve vaccines. Maybe that's something to look at with the other vaccines as well. Maybe not having the same amount of uh, vaccine dose for the first and the second dose. Maybe the first dose should be a little bit smaller and there's also talk like in the UK about just having the first dose first and then having a longer delay before the second dose because you already get a reasonable amount of protection after the first dose at least for a period of, of time 
And so in, in terms of getting more people vaccinated more quickly, in the UK they've decided to give out one dose to more people first before catching up with the second doses later. Yes, and that makes sense to me, I have to say. I know there's you can you can argue it both ways, but my simple rationale for that is if you've got two doses and you can only give them, are you going to give both of them to one grandparent to give them 95% protection or are you going to give one dose to each of them to give them 80 to 90% protection? That seems like a a simple decision. Although yeah, but... there is the counter argument that we may be having an impact on the mutatability of the virus if we play the vaccines in this way. But we're, to a certain extent, having multiple experiments taking place here, aren't we, Ben? Because we're sort of playing this, playing what we see in front of us. We don't really have a lot of evidence. Yeah, no, so I can see both sides of the argument. The side that you mentioned about giving more people protection, uh, maybe to a lesser degree with one dose. But then, of course, the other side, as you mentioned, is the possibility that with a lower level of protection, maybe there'll be a great opportunity for for escape variants to emerge where the vaccine doesn't protect against them. And also the trials that have been done with two doses, there's only that narrow window of time between the first dose and the second dose. So although maybe it's 80 percent or whatever after the first dose, 80 percent protection, we don't know if that lasts for a long time or if it's just for that one or two months between the doses. If it if it then drops to a low level after that, then we've got to be aware is we really have got to get that second dose in um, at some point, but maybe not necessarily within 21 days or 28 days, maybe could wait a little bit longer. Uh, in Hong Kong, we're, we're going to go for the two doses according to the schedule. So after three or four weeks, the second dose coming in. Uh, that's the plan that I've heard from the, the experts in Hong Kong. Yes, in terms of the vaccinations that we're going to give in Hong Kong, there's been a number of reports in the media talking about typically its percentage efficacy. Mm. Everybody is aware of 95% Pfizer and the Oxford AstraZeneca um, depends on the numbers you're looking at, doesn't it? And this is this is a difficulty because we, when we do these studies, the, the, the majority of the studies are, are, are designed to pick up symptomatic disease, aren't they? And so we we can we give forty thousand people, forty four thousand in the in the uh, Pfizer study, and wait until there's been one hundred and seventy cases. It was one hundred and sixty two were subsequently shown to be in the group uh, who'd, who'd had the placebo and eight were in the group who'd had the... That, there's where we get the 95% from. But in, other studies do things slightly different ways. And there's, 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 could you maybe explain the difference between the vaccines which maybe present disease and whether they prevent mild disease and whether they present transmission? They're all different things, aren't they? So there's there's a lot of different concepts to unpack. One of them I can talk about first is the difference between individual protection and population protection. So anybody who gets vaccinated is going to protect themselves. But at the same time, if we get enough people vaccinated, then even people who have not been vaccinated will be indirectly protected because there's just not enough susceptible people in the population uh, for the virus to spread. And that concept's called herd immunity. So when we're vaccinating people for COVID in Hong Kong, we're aiming to get to a level where we have herd immunity and we don't really need to worry anymore. So even if we only vaccinate 80% of the population, maybe the last 20% will still be okay because COVID simply can't spread. Now, in the trials that have been done so far, they've had different outcomes. The Pfizer trial, the outcome 
analyzed in that study was moderate or even severe COVID, not really so much mild COVID. So the 95% effectiveness was in protecting those participants in the study against getting a more serious infection. But it's not clear whether the Pfizer vaccine also prevents mild infections or asymptomatic infections. Um, and the Sinovac, when they just announced their 50%, they were very clear in their press release that that's including even mild infections. But then they had better protection. It was 78% protection against maybe more moderate or even severe disease. So maybe with each of these vaccines, they work better at the individual level against severe disease, but maybe not so well against milder disease. And in a population, the concern would then be, even if we have a lot of vaccinated people, we might not get to a level of herd immunity because there could still be mild infections in a vaccinated fraction spreading to the people who haven't had the chance to be vaccinated or, or have chosen not to be vaccinated. And I want to give one formula, if that's okay. I'm a mathematician uh, by training. So if I give you A times B, A is the proportion of people that are vaccinated. Let's say, for example, 80% of people in Hong Kong get vaccinated. So that's 80%. B is the vaccine effectiveness. For Pfizer, let's say 90%, because it's easier to work with than 95%. So if you get A times B, 80 times 90 is 72%. That's our effective vaccine coverage. If we can get effective vaccine coverage to a level maybe 60%, 70%, we should be able to get herd immunity in Hong Kong. And we won't then face the threat, even if COVID spreads, we wouldn't have to worry about uh, the health system being overwhelmed, hospitals being packed, uh, oxygen running out like it's just been running out in Brazil, unfortunately. So one of the problems that I can see is with the Sinovac vaccine, the effectiveness is 50%. So that's B. So whatever A is, even if A is 100%, A times B is only going to be 50%. And it's unlikely we can reach 100% vaccine coverage. And 50% effective vaccine coverage is not enough for herd immunity. So if we vaccinate everyone with Sinovac, we'll still be vulnerable to having COVID spreading in the community and still causing a lot of infections. Of course, the people who are vaccinated will have their reduction in risk of severe COVID, and that's good news, but there could still be a lot of infections. So really, I think we've got to look at the more effective vaccines, and we've got to keep in mind this target of effective vaccine coverage. With a highly effective vaccine, we're okay if some people choose not to get the vaccine, but with a moderately effective vaccine, it's going to be a priority for the government to get coverage to a high level however they can manage it because until we manage that we're still gonna uh, have to be prepared to have social distancing measures in place when there's surges in cases like the fourth wave and maybe there'll be a fifth wave and maybe other waves as well so it's really going to be a tough year and i'm worried that after vaccines start being used people are going to relax there's going to be less enthusiasm about social distancing and actually we could face a really big challenge from covid in hong kong this year We've done so well in 2020, but 2021 could be difficult. We, we could see a lot more infections, a lot more impact to the healthcare system. Uh, we've had time to prepare for it, but it'll be such a shame when we have vaccines available if that's when we let our guard down and COVID's allowed to spread more freely and, and then suddenly maybe a, a lot of people getting infected. I, I'm quite concerned about that. I mean, it may be that we have to rethink this concept of herd immunity, uh, Ben, I mean, playing the devil's advocate here, accepting what you've said, we know that COVID 
is a disease which in younger people is not such a serious disease and, and really becomes a, a problem from 60, 65 over. If we can vaccinate reasonably high proportion of the vulnerable, of the elderly, uh, of those with coexisting illnesses, it may be that we can normalize much more readily. Um, and I think the second factor, sort of related, independent but related, is that although the vaccines may reduce the severity of the disease, that in itself is likely to reduce the viral load, which is likely to reduce the infectivity to some degree. I mean, it may well be that what we end up seeing is that this becomes, a, I don't really, you know, this, this is almost a sort of politicization of the influenza argument, but living with it like we live with influenza, it may be a disease that we just have to get on and accept that we live with if we can protect the vulnerable. So I, I, for the last part, I agree with that. I think in a couple of years' time, COVID is going to be a lot like influenza. It's going to arrive maybe in winter surges or in surges. We have summer flu season as well, maybe surges at other times of the year. There's going to be people getting sick. There's going to be people in hospital. There may even still be deaths, but it won't have the kind of impact that we've seen in other parts of the world where hospitals get flooded with cases when the epidemic's still on the way up. Uh, we know that COVID is a much more severe infection than influenza in people who have not previously been infected with COVID or not been vaccinated. But as you said, after vaccination, that should reduce the severity a lot. Um, in terms of rethinking herd immunity, what I'm imagining or what I'm worrying about is in maybe the UK and other European countries, they're going to have a chance to vaccinate their elderly and maybe the vulnerable adults and healthcare workers. But then for whatever reason, there's going to be more and more spread of infection in the community in the adults who, you're right, the risk is much lower. But still, we have seen deaths in, in China in the early days, in middle-aged adults. Remember the doctor, uh, Dr. Lee, the, the, uh, one of the victims in the early days. So it can still be a nasty infection in adults. Of course, not as, not as severe as in, in elderly. But I worry that once we vaccinate the elderly, we still do have to worry about COVID because there could still be a, a lot of infections and among those, a minority of severe cases. And uh, certainly it's going to be more of a challenge to influence, than influenza to deal with in, in 2021. Um, but then subsequent years, hopefully more of an influenza-sized problem that we'll then deal with on, a, on an ad hoc basis, like we do with influenza. Sometimes we close schools, maybe in future years, we'll sometimes have social distancing measures for a short period of time to mitigate a COVID epidemic. That also depends on how well the vaccines are working. Yeah. If, if there's a high uptake of a very effective vaccine which provides protection for a long period of time, then I think we won't really be worried about COVID anymore. But if the vaccine doesn't work as well as we're hoping or the coverage level is lower, then it's going to be uh, the kind of thing we may have to just live with. Because certainly we, we can't afford to keep all of these social distancing measures in place for, for years more. We can't afford to keep Hong Kong closed to visitors and, and tourists for, for much longer so at some point we'll have to say enough is enough but I'm, I'm worried that if we say that too early then unfortunately we we could face a scenario like in the UK where hospitals get a lot of admissions and really overwhelmed with with cases and that would be a shame to see after we've done so well for a year. Being a serious optimist I would look at the 
that the vaccines, I think in particular the RNA vaccines, if they work as well as some of the early data is suggesting, they really could be one of the great advances of our generation in, in terms of the ability to change the availability of those vaccines. Clearly, we, we need more data and there are some questions about side effects, but I think I would imagine we could both agree that, that, that the real optimistic sign on the horizon is, is that of immunization and vaccination. I think so, and for, for many different diseases. Yeah. So, so these mRNA vaccines, they've been looked at for other diseases in the past, but they're expensive to develop. But once you've got them, like we have now for COVID, they can be updated very quickly if there are new variants emerge or new strains emerging. And for other viruses, there's now going to be a lot of enthusiasm to look for, for these, for maybe for influenza, maybe for RSV that affects so many children and infants in Hong Kong and in other countries, and maybe some other infections. And then, of course, if there's another SARS, another COVID in the future, another emerging infection, maybe mRNA, mRNA vaccines would be the kind of vaccines that would be the quickest to be able to get out, to be manufactured and used. So we could have vaccines even within a year. Right now for COVID, it's been a year. Maybe for the for the next one, it'll be even quicker than that. So it's really an, an important advance uh, of this of this new technology. Well, yes, again, thanks so much for your time, Ben, and for sharing your expertise. And maybe we could leave on that note of cautious optimism. Would that be a reasonable description? Great, yeah, happy to talk. Vaccinations are due to be rolled out in Hong Kong in the next few weeks. The logistics of this programme are still being worked out, but the initial wave of vaccinations is likely to take place in government vaccination centres. We have produced a summary of the vaccinations which are planned for Hong Kong on our website and will keep this page updated, including our role in the process as information and evidence evolve. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can share this episode and subscribe to future episodes via Spotify or iTunes or via the page on our website. Thank you.